hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. John Ellett and Tom Phillips uh, and a book on conspiracy. So um, looking forward to this one. Yeah, we can have a bit of fun with this. And it's very relevant. I mean, it always has been. But uh, certainly, you know, today with uh, the likes of QAnon and everything like that, uh, which I know you do do write about, um, conspiracies can be very powerful things uh, in the wrong hands. Um, so, yeah, I suppose you, you've introduced us to your book and uh, the motivation for uh, writing it. Who wants to answer that one? <laughs> John, do you want to go for that? We're waving hands to each other. <laughs> um so so um it's actually the it's actually the third in tom's excellent uh series which is sort of an un- it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't have a title the series does it but it's three related books the first of which was humans a brief history of of uh, screwing everything up or words to that effect um and the second of which was called truth um and the the, the vibe is basically kind of like funny histories about about everything going horribly wrong is that is that a fair assessment tom I think it's yeah. It's the, if if the series has a name, it's God. We're awful, aren't we? Um, <laughs> although not actually, like it's it's not it's not dispiriting. It's like it's kind of. I, th- I think we take a kind of a a warm and you know mm. sort of gentle approach to things. Like we're not like too judgmental. A bit judgmental. No, I think so. little little bit <laughs> little bit. I mean. Something I think we tried to do, I hope we tried to do, is we were kind of, we were kind of quite, we tried to be generous to, to people and to why they might believe in, in these things that sound often on the face of it completely crazy. We tried not to just be dismissive of things like flat earthers or, or I mean, there are some conspiracies that, that, that it's good to be dismissive of because they are, they are pure evil, but some of them are just kind of a bit kooky, aren't they? So, I mean, Absolutely. I think, yeah, I, I, I think that's the thing is, is, you know everybody gets into them for a good reason they may come out of it in a place where it's all gone horribly horribly wrong Mm. but normally there's something really deep down behind it that's perfectly relatable perfectly understandable and that actually lots of us share so yeah yeah and and i think you know like you know like you said there some of them are, are kind of less threatening or less dangerous than other ones, but you know, not to start off on, on a complete negative, but certainly during the, the pandemic um, that we've all come out the other side of, hopefully, that, that's when things really got you know serious when it came to conspiracy theories, where it, it, it went from, you know, where the moon landings faked, which really winds my goat because as, as Neil, I'm named after Neil Armstrong. So. <laughs> So I'm a real, I've, I've a friend of mine. Slander. Yeah, so, you know, he'll wind me up going, oh, yeah, they're fake. You know, what, what's that conspiracy that was created in the studio yeah, and all yeah, that stuff? Yeah. And that really gets my goat, you know. But look, no, no one's going to get hurt. However, I'm a journalist, so we would have covered a lot of stories during the pandemic of actual conspiracy theorists. Otherwise, 
quote, quote, normal people who um, really went off on the deep end. And this is where it gets a little bit, you know, less funny because they were putting out this, these messages that were potentially threatening, harming, and in some cases cost people their lives because they were listening to this stuff, right? So, you know, that's, it's, it's, that's something that you guys differentiate between the, oh, no one gets harmed to the more serious stuff. Yeah, um, a simple a simple guide to who wrote what in the book, by the way, is generally the, the sort of like the nobody gets hurt ones are generally me and the ones where 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 people could completely screw up the world uh, and that require a sort of a, a rather harder news edge. So those are generally Tom. So the COVID chapter is Tom. I'm going to let him take this one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and to be clear, like I was working throughout the sort of the first year of the pandemic. I was editor at Full Fact, you know, sort of fact checking. Uh, organization where you know like most of our day job before that had been like sort of oh this politician says this thing about the unemployment rate let's go and look at office for national statistics and find out if they're right now all of a sudden it's like people are saying that the vaccines have microchips in them uh, and you shouldn't take the vaccines and that's bad and all of a sudden it's like if you get this wrong you can die but also the people who are doing this which again you always have empathy for like i mean that was a weird time in all of our lives right that was a deeply strange moment and the thing is like when everything around you is strange then nothing seems implausible it's a real moment at which like perfectly previously rational reasonable people can easily get sucked in by this stuff because nothing about the world is normal right now so there's nothing to anchor themselves to and so i think like you know there's always that degree of empathy because you know things can be scary things can be weird and that can lead you astray but at the same time it is very clear that conspiracy theories can do real damage yeah. i mean the number of people who have died because of covid conspiracy theories is a real number we don't know exactly what it yeah. is but we definitely know that there are people there's a guy who died after drinking fish tank cleaner because yeah. the president of the united states said yeah. that you know chloroquine could cure it that's you know that's a bad situation to be in mm. um you know there's there's research that's sort of been coming out recently about the distinction between places with low vaccination rates based on political beliefs in the United States and places where the political beliefs were more pro-vaccination and the death rates are really distinct. So yeah, this stuff has real consequences and we haven't even got on to the anti-Semitism parts of the book yet. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, as journalists, guys, you know, I would have, as I said, I covered these stories like there was these huge anti-vaccine marches in Dublin every, that was my gig for, you know, every Saturday. Oh, another anti-vaccine march. And I've been on many protest marches in, in Dublin, you know, against water, against, you know, political march, motivated marches. But they were the ones that really were, for want of a better word, disturbing. You had otherwise fully, what appeared to me, intelligent engaging people coming up to me saying you're one of them i was like one of what and he said you know it was they saw ironically a conspiracy amongst the media in ireland against the anti-vaccine movement so they, they, that's that's and you know you had these anti-vax campaigners going to hospitals encouraging people to leave 
because they were going to get injected with this vaccine and then they died you know and what's happened to them now like have they all just because the vaccines worked have they all just shuttled away uh, back into the woodwork do they just go oh you know what we were wrong the whole time the next conspiracy what happens you know it's baffling so I think one of the one of the, so the recurring stories we found in the book is that a lot of the time these, especially now in the age of the internet, the, the conspiracy theories are already out there. They're kind of free floating. There are people who've been talking about, you know, uh, microchips and vaccines or whatever it is for, for, for years, probably. Um, but big global news, especially global news stories like the pandemic that, that affect a huge amount of people and unsettle everyone, those kind of like, uh, give those those theories kind of a lease of life so like suddenly um it's almost like an evolutionary mechanism like suddenly these things have been out there for ages and suddenly they're the they, they, they can grow to be kind of the, the, the main predators because suddenly like the environment suits them um so i would imagine that a lot of the conspiracy theorists are, are still out there um but because covid is not is not topping the news agenda as it was for, for two years or so um it's not it's not the thing that they're they're, they're worrying about anymore tom does that sound about right to you uh yeah it does i mean certainly some of them have moved on to other things and this is a thing is that in a thing that the internet's enabled is that all of the conspiracy theories can now link up and so you have the anti-vaccination conspiracy theories are now linking up with the 2020 US election was stolen conspiracy theories, mm. are linking up with the moon landings, are linking up mm. with the Illuminati, are linking up with all of these things. Mm. Uh, the, the, the internet, in the same way that the internet is great for the serendipitous finding of like, you know, the person who found your child's teddy bear on a train or, you know, like the you know, back to the old school of internet of like the people you went to school with, like the internet is also great at linking you up with the one other person who believes the mad, mad thing that you currently think. And as a result, you know, it it kind of breeds these grounds. But then again, a bunch of these anti-vaccination conspiracy theorists, they haven't gone away. They're still claiming they were right. I mean, Naomi Wolf, to choose a prominent example, was interviewed just the other day and was still saying that the vaccines were basically mass murder. And you're just like, they've been given to millions upon millions of people around the world. And and and, and it hasn't. But no, it's like the, the thing about conspiracy theories is that you've got one fixed thing that you always believe. Like, you know, it could be like who did it, it could be what was done, it, you know, it could be a different thing. But like, you've got one fixed thing. In this case, it's vaccines are bad. And then the goalposts for everything else moves around. It just absolutely goes on. The goalposts go on walkabout. And so like, they're still claiming that the vaccines are deadly. There was a, the, a um, literally the day we were recording this, um, two days ago was supposed to be the date, according to one of the conspiracy theories, that the toxins in the vaccine would be activated possibly via 5g and that everybody had the vaccination would die like that was that was two days ago that they were lots of them were going like it's going to happen we're really sorry for you all people who got the vaccination but you're about to die speaking speaking for myself i i did die and i i was replaced by a lizard person is that not is that not true of everyone else on the call 
I'm the same. I'm now I'm kind of wondering, is this actually happening or are we already dead? And, you know, speaking from a different dimension, maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting. Well, are, are, there, are there any theories out there? Because obviously these things uh, do rub off on, on rational people, me being one of them. Uh, but is there, <laughs> are there... Are there any theories out there to, to say why the middle-aged population of Ireland have uh, lost their short-term memory recently? Anything like that? Or are you, you sorry? Subscribe to that? sorry. I, I, I personally have uh, lost my memory. Uh, my wife is the same. And uh, we're resorting to finding our phones in the veg box of the fridge um, and things like that. So there's a, 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 thing, a certain uh, dementia from the, from the vaccine. No, I think that's, I, I think that's just middle age, isn't it? That's, 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 uh, age. Yeah. that's, that's why. That's, that's always been a thing. We'll come to us all. That's why two middle-aged men like us get together and do podcasts because you know it's you know midlife crisis. That, that's all that's, that is. And we remember all the old stuff that's not the new stuff, so that's okay. I mean, I mean, I I found my phone in my sock drawer the other day. <laughs> now, that's good. Now, I feel better now. Now maybe I can't rule out that that was the Illuminati. Yeah, <laughs> they do get that's everywhere. True. So yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. When you guys embark on, on something like this, do you, do you find yourselves kind of going, well, hold on, I never thought of it that way. And do you find, whoa, step back from the, from the ledge? And if uh, so, okay. which, which, which conspiracy theory is your favourite then? <laughs> oh, those are, oh those, are, those, are, those are different questions. Um, there, was, there, there was a moment. So, so I, I, I did the Flat Earth chapter. Um, I interviewed uh, a guy um sergeant his name is isn't it mark sergeant who's like one of the world's leading flat earthers if you watch a documentary about the flat earth conspiracy theory he's likely to be the protagonist and he is you know whatever whatever else you can say about him he's a lovely man he was very generous of his time he's he's like i would say well, slightly awkwardly asking questions he's like just spit it out like you think no one's <laughs> asked me if questions that sound embarrassing before just uh and he seemed quite he seemed pretty reasonable and what really freaked me out was having interviewed him for an hour, there are a couple of arguments he made that I could not immediately see what was wrong with them. So, so I ended up writing, I think about three or 4,000 words that wasn't really about a conspiracy theory at all. It was actually about proving to my own satisfaction that the earth was round. Um, and, and as we were sort of coming to the point where we kind of showed the book to our editors, Tom gently suggested that maybe that was, that was something we could take as assumed knowledge. Um, and I probably didn't need quite so many words proving the scientifically obvious. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And so, so how did you reassure yourself then, John, that we don't live in a flat third? I can't, it, it's just like... So there's lots of individual bits of this theory. So like one of one of the one of the pieces of you know evidence and quote marks flat earthers use is that cameras can take uh, photographs of things that you know with the curvature of the Earth, you know, mountain ranges four hundred miles away or something. That cameras can take photographs of things that shouldn't be invisible; they should be hidden by the curve of the Earth. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for this. One is that when we look at these pictures, they're generally taken from up mountains, where there is better visibility. Uh, another is that um, there is a there there is a phenomenon called refraction, where light does actually bend around the Earth, not far but slightly. That helps. And um, refraction is at its greatest. Uh, 
when the sun is very low in the sky so either shortly after dawn or shortly before dusk so like these things between them can generally well not generally i actually they can always explain things away because if i'm leaving gaps and then, then we have a problem these things between them can explain why you do get these photographs of you know taken from one mountain range showing another mountain range hundreds of miles away um but but it's not this stuff isn't obvious it's not instinctive um, so, you know, and, and this is, I think, a recurring pattern in a lot of conspiracy theories is like the explanations are there. It's entirely it's entirely scientific, but it's a level of science that you can't make sound uh, like good sense in a sentence or two. It, it's got an extra layer of complexity. So like the people in this world of whom there are many who, who, who say things like, you know, it's just common sense. They may be easier to convince with the, the simple but wrong explanations than the more complicated but, but correct ones. Right on. yeah. there's, a, there's a friend of mine, um, he lives in uh, Nicaragua, uh, now he's, he's Irish, but uh, I remember when the pandemic came, uh, he sent me a video, um, or YouTube video, and he was being deadly serious. I, I, I changed the relationship, I have to say. Uh, but what's the, and I, and then it's just, my memory again has gone, escaped me. Um, the English ex-footballer, Lizard people in the, what's his name again? David? Uh, David Ike. Uh, yeah, David Ike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and he is full on convinced uh, of his sanity. When he's talking about, it. I mean, it's you know, if you were just if you didn't know any backstory and you just said, you know, this and, and the, some of the interviews are done in very you know studio setting and the whole thing and it's all taken very seriously. Um, I just go, wow, you know, is, is is that mental illness, you know, or or is it is it uh, I don't know what what it is, but he he's been at this for what thirty years. Yeah, I mean, it was it was sort of early nineties, um, yeah. like that that uh, like. Because he because he went on Terry Wogan's show, you know, um, and you know Wogan, you know, classic interviewer, like you know, lets people talk, and you know, David Ike, who's a guy that we knew off of Grandstand, you know, he presented the snooker, and like he's just going like clarifying like that he's not claiming to be the son of God, but that he is a manifestation of the Godhead much as Jesus Christ was. And it's like, this is so strange. This is so, so strange to see someone you know off of the telly, you know, who occasionally did Ski Sunday, uh, is just, you know, saying that he's a manifestation of the Godhead and he now only wears the colour turquoise because that's the colour that vibrates at the same frequency as uh, love and wisdom. And it's like, okay, good. Well, well done. Uh, but it's so, it's so, so strange. But of course, the thing, the thing about Ike is that, you know, he had that TV presenter training. Like, he knows how to seem plausible in the moment. Like, it's very natural to him. And so, yeah, like, it's, you, you, you watch some of his stuff and he's just like very, very calmly explaining about the lizards, which he's very clear by lizards, he doesn't mean Jews even though the descriptions of the lizards and the descriptions of Jewish people are remarkably similar in many, many ways. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's not a metaphor for Jews. No, he actually means lizards. Okay, bye. Uh, but yeah, like it's so, so strange to see this happening to people. I mean, like pandemic, we saw this happen to loads of people, like loads of famous people yeah. who all of a sudden didn't have a day job because all of entertainment had been mm. shut down. That's right. 
Well, they it, just it looked like a serious YouTube station when I got the video. Yeah. Like, and I didn't know about it, in, in fairness. So I was actually watching it going, okay, well, this is, you know, he's talking about what's going on, the pandemic, how a lot. And then all of a sudden you get to the alien part. And it's just, just what the, whoa. You know, my, my head at the time was in a bit of a strange place because I was, uh, you know, I was busy buying axes and sledgehammers in, in preparation for the zombie apocalypse that was coming <laughs> uh, from the pandemic. But, uh yeah, those axes and hammers haven't got used. They're still hanging up in the garage. But um, yeah, so funny, funny stuff, you know. No zombie apocalypse then. Um, but, you know, anti-Semitism, that seems to be a recurring theme. Um, you know, throughout history. Throughout history. What have the Jews ever done on us? Why the, you know... <laughs> they charge us interest on our debts. Are we going off tangent here, guys? Or is this, you know, you know getting into why... Um, flourished over the centuries against the Jewish people. So it is, again, it's a, it's a Tom section of the book. He wrote one of the earliest chapters of the book, actually talking about the, uh, the origins of, of the blood libel, the idea that, that it's an important part of Jewish ritual involves the blood of innocent Christian babies, um, which, you know, you can trace this story back to, is it 12th century Norwich, which was at the time um, one, of, one of the major cities of England, and, uh, and, and Tom, you'll tell the story better than me. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time, one-euro enjoyment donation. And we very much welcome uh, any donations at all. In fact, we will be offering a paid subscription tier. More on that later. And anyhow, if uh, you don't have it, don't worry. Keep tuning in. We'll be here. Died. His name is William. Um, and it's, yeah, this is 1144. He, his body's found in the forest. We don't know what happened to him. He might have been killed by outlaws. Uh, he might have been killed by, as is often the case with these things, a relative, you know, like he might have committed suicide. We don't know. But based on little more than the fact that his mother had a dream in which some Jews were attacking her. Um, I mean, it's very like it. it's a child died, a young boy the Jewish population of Norwich, who were fairly new in town at the time, like they'd only come over during the Norman conquests. And so, <clears throat> and so it kind of builds up and it becomes used politically. This is the thing, it's like, it wouldn't have had any impact if it hadn't become useful politically to various interested parties who suddenly could use this to have a go at a population that they wanted to demonize for various different reasons. Um, <clears throat> And so, like, it begins as a conspiracy theory. Like, I don't think we'd call the blood libel a conspiracy theory much today. It's bigger than that. It's different to that. But it begins as a conspiracy theory, is that there literally was a conspiracy to murder children. And it adds this sort of idea of why, and, that's, and it becomes replicable. When you make it a theory, you can replicate it. And so it spreads out from medieval Norwich across Europe 
and really becomes embedded because everybody can use this idea for their own local circumstances, their own local little tragedies, they can explain it away. And so, yeah, like, and, and this is not the only example of, uh, of this. The blood libel is one thing. You have the, the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is a sort of, you know, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, forgery. Like we, we know where all of the original text from the protocols of the elders of Zion comes from. It was just plagiarized and copied and pasted basically from a whole range of different texts. Um, and yet these things have this, this sort of weight behind them. It seems that when you identify a group of bad guys, of which certainly in Europe and beyond, um, the Jewish people have been, they've been a, an identified group of bad guys. There are others, obviously, witches, um, Catholics. Jesuits come up a lot. Jesuits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Catholics or specifically Jesuits. Um, if you don't want to have a go at all Catholics, just have a go at the Jesuits. Um, but there are these groups who become identified. And once you've got a bad guy, you can keep going back to that well time and time and time again and go like, oh, something has happened. Oh, the church fell down. Oh, there was a thunderstorm. Oh, there's flooding. Oh, there's a pandemic. I think one of the one of the sort of primal needs for this stuff that explains why conspiracism is a recurring theme of of history all the way back to I think the first the, first, the earliest one we found was actually the first century uh, in, in the Roman Empire. Um, I, it, it's because people need someone to blame for the inexplicable. Mm. Um, you know, if, 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 your, if your livelihood disappears because of economic change, it is, it is in some ways more comforting to imagine that bad people did that to you rather than just simply that the, the, the world is a cold and uncaring place and sometimes the economy shifts. And the same with something like the pandemic. In some ways, it is almost more comforting to imagine this was done deliberately by some by some iffy Chinese scientists than to think that, you know, some slight genetic mutations in a virus on a bat somewhere can 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 basically force the world to stop for months on end and suddenly you're not allowed out. Um, that's that's more terrifying than the I it, it, it is more terrifying to imagine that nobody is in charge than that bad people sometimes are, I think. Yeah, so it shows the power of uh, conspiracies though, like I say, you know, something about the blood libel from nourish and spreads out across the world without the internet. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's the thing, you know, that, that message was so strong that it was able to, you know, it's a besieged uh, all around all around Europe. Um, and yeah, I mean, the biggest conspiracy theory of all possibly is all, all religion, who knows? But you know what I mean? You know, Christianity sprung up no different uh, than, than Islam. I mean, it, it, um, Islam was in Medina, a tiny little desert town, and all of a sudden it took over, you know, uh, half the world. One of one of the cheekier things I do in the book, which which I don't think anyone's actually noticed any reviews or anything, but in the in the chapter on aliens, uh, where we sort of run through the history of like strange visions appearing in the sky, which may or may not have been sort of described as aliens, uh, I do include Constantine's vision of the of the one true cross, mm. and said so that you know from that from that perspective, then surely the entire entirety of world history can be put down to this weird vision in the sky, and if it was aliens, we're all going to look really silly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, sorry, aliens obviously 
massive, massive subject. I think that's that was our almost as in from kids that would be in our first introduction to conspiracy. We we didn't know that we wouldn't have described that as at the time, you know, just watching ET. But you know, is the truth out there? Where do you stand Ooh, on the files? files. <laughs> files. Yeah, you know, so we're part of that generation. We're part of that generation, and you know, where do you stand on the whole aliens thing? Or is it too broad a subject to just say? Definitively, there are no aliens, or definitively, there are aliens. So, so extraterrestrial life is not, you know, aliens in and of themselves are not a conspiracy theory. You know, they whether, whether life on other planets exists or not, or even whether it's, it's visited us, those are not in themselves. The conspiracy lies in, in the idea that the authorities know about it and yeah. have covered it up to use the technology or whatever. Um, and I think the... So one of the one of the sort of um, interesting things that I think actually came out while we were writing the book is is the New York Times ran a series of stories on the fact that the U.S. government was bas basically admitted to the fact that it had been interested in investigating uh, the existence or otherwise of alien life, and it had pretty much smeared um, those who, who who promoted the idea it was doing this. Um, not, not, not. I don't think because like people had found anything dodgy going on. It was purely because like they didn't want. Was it they did? They didn't want. Um, they didn't want navy pilots getting confused by the idea or something like that. They didn't want. They didn't was, want people briefly. They, 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 they didn't want the idea of uh, UFOs to spread too widely because they wanted to make sure that when there were reports of unusual things flying over American airspace, they were real. Which worked brilliantly. Because obviously. they thought it was the Soviets or the Chinese. Yeah. Like, they were basically going like, if people believe, if people think that anything in the sky is a UFO and they report that to our hotline, then it'll be flooded, which means that when the Soviets fly spy planes over, we, we won't be able to pick that out from all of the other reports. So they were trying to tamp that down. Wow. Um, because for, for that reason, and basically, that's also why they're still interested in UFOs today, is because they're worried that it's drones. They're worried yeah. that it's, it's Chinese drones of some kind or something like that. Um, or maybe that's all a big cover up for the fact that it's actually aliens. Uh, the, 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 way, the way we end that chapter is a fairly, dis, dis, uh, uh, fairly depressing discussion of, um, of, of this thing called the Drake Equation, which is uh, this guy, uh, Frank Drake, tried to work out the likelihood of life existing on other planets. So he came, he came up with an equation that like, you can, the numbers you put into it vary depending on, on, on the science you believe in. But, but like you, know, you, you can work out if you look at the number of you know the rate of star formation, the number of stars in a galaxy, the number of those stars that have exoplanets, the number of those planets in school life, or you work your way all the way down through this list, um, you know you can work out the likelihood of of, of, of oh sorry you can work out the number of civilizations that are likely to be in this in this galaxy, um, and you have to start with some pretty depressing assumptions to get to the number one, which is as far as we know the accurate number at this point so so it does seem very very plausible that that, that life has or can evolve, has evolved elsewhere but we have we have absolutely no evidence of it um which is which is a phenomenon known as fermi's is it fermi's paradox it is, isn't it uh, the fermi paradox uh, which is basically where is everybody if it's that likely there should be life mm. out there why have we never seen any evidence of it and and the the most haunting uh, resolution of that paradox I've I've personally oops, dropping my mic the most haunting 
Rest the, the most haunting. I'll try that again. The most haunting um, way of resolving that paradox that I've personally come across is the idea that advanced life tends to destroy itself because all the forces, the evolutionary forces that, that, that push a civilization to push life to evolve and then a civilization to grow from it also give you things like uh, pollution and nuclear weapons and bring about, you know, the, the, the civilization contains the seeds of its own destruction, basically. Um, which was, so that was a very cheery end to that chapter. Yeah, it is. That, that, that's interesting. But I mean, yeah, ultimately quite plausible. And I, I suppose a lot of the problem we have in trying to find life on Earth is, is the question of time, because we're obviously dealing with the speed of light. And, you know, what, what we're seeing when we look up into the night sky is something in the past and not present. So, you know, we've no idea, we've no idea how to that. But it's quite localised, the alien thing, isn't it? I mean, it's not, okay, I don't know about the UK, but certainly in Ireland, Oh, I don't know, it's almost as much of a, an, an alien spotting community at all, but uh, you know, America is where it's at for those with that kind of conspiracy, isn't it? And that's it's an interesting just... point. What, why is it geographical? Like, what, why are, you know, arguably Americans, more Americans see UFOs than Irish people? or I think, or I th I think it's cultural. I mean, like, one mm -hmm. thing we say in the same chapter is that you've got, you look at sort of, you know, Constantine seeing the cross in the sky or, you know, there are reports of like UFOs, what we now call UFOs uh, in sort of, you know, the, the late 1600s in the American colonies or that sort of thing. They're not interpreted as that at the time. Constantine sees a cross in the sky and he thinks it's a message from God. You know, in, in the American colonies, they think it's ghosts. They think it's spirits that are, are doing this sort of thing. It's very, very cultural. Humans have always seen weird stuff in the skies because the sky is full of weird stuff and our eyes react to it in a certain way. What we do is we interpret it in a certain way. In America, and to a certain extent in the UK, we interpret, oh, there's something weird in the sky, that's aliens. Hmm. Another place, another time, you interpret it as a completely different thing. And, hmm. or, or, you know, or indeed as a drone that's buzzing Gatwick. Uh, is is a way that people interpreted it for a, a, a short time. Also, the, the UFO thing kind of goes through the roof uh, around the time that manned flight becomes possible. It really kicks off in the sort of eighteen nineties, nineteen hundreds, and then goes into overdrive once you have you know bombing campaigns and the possibility of nuclear fire raining from the sky. So I think it is also tied up with this kind of like this psychological idea that suddenly there, there, there could be things up there which could do unspeakable things to us. Um, and I think that somehow gets mediated as the idea that, you know, it could be aliens rather than it could be, you know, a Soviet missile or something. More, more, one of the more recent conspiracies in certainly in our time, it's probably already historic, but definitely in years to come, people listening back in this podcast is 9-11. Um, which still has repercussions to this day. You know, you can really go down the rabbit hole with the whole conspiracy behind 9-11. To me, it's, it, it, it's, it's really hard to understand how anybody could suggest that a government would initiate such a, such a plan and kill their own people to initiate a war for oil. You know, that, that's what some of the more simplistic conspiracies would suggest. I mean, you know- I, I I think it's the phenomenon we were just talking about, though. It's the idea, you know, the idea that the US government would, would for whatever reason, murder its own citizens is somehow less frightening than the idea that the US is simply vulnerable to attack. 
Right. So, so I think, so I think it just comes out of that psychological need for that. For, 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 for the security is not quite the right word, but comprehensibility, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And and then just kind of linked to that as well is like I don't know if you'd call it conspiracy theory, but you guys can steer me right. Is the whole um, weapons of mass destruction, which on the back of nine eleven gave people like Blair. Um, you know, and, and the Bushes permission to launch, you know, you know, wars that we're still seeing the consequences of. Would that fall into the remit of a conspiracy theory where you had this this notion that Saddam Hussein sitting on these weapons that could could strike Britain? I mean, is that is that a, is that a conspiracy theory? I, I would say propagated by a government. We say as much in the book. Um, you can't disentangle the 9-11 conspiracy theories from this. And, and yeah, like we don't normally think of a conspiracy theory as being something that a government yeah. can believe. But yeah. this was a theory that Iraq was doing something in secret and that they were conspiring to cover up the fact that they had weapons of mass destruction. That's that's a conspiracy theory, you know, like. Sounds like one um, to me. Um, and yes, yeah. So like I say, like it we normally think that a conspiracy theory is something that is believed, first of all, by a weirdo. You know, yeah. we have an image of the conspiracy theorist in our minds, and yeah. they're they they live in their mother's basement and they spend too much time on the internet yeah. and uh, their it personal hygiene personal hygiene is poor, and we have that. So but as I say, well, beyond, beyond the fact that like you know, in, in our book, like the people who believe the conspiracy, the people who promote the conspiracy theories include a huge number of like elite players, uh, you know, people from the top of society, you know, Nobel Prize winners, you know, you've got the absolute things. But beyond that, doesn't actually even need to be a person who believes it. I think that, you know, like, I don't know any definition of conspiracy theory by which WMDs wasn't yeah. a conspiracy theory. Yeah. And... And so is it any wonder that people believe the stuff about 9-11 when their governments were believing something on the other side at the same time? Exactly. Exactly. It's an important link you made absolutely in the book. You know, that's why I thought I'd bring it up. Um, just because, you know, you're, you're not wearing a tinfoil hat doesn't mean you're, you're not prone to conspiracy theories. And we do wonder, was it, you know, was it plans the whole time? You know, was it like... This is the Webs of Mass Destruction. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was an agenda. You know, by, by the, created, the you know, by by some people because they wanted and needed to take Iraq. I, mean, I think it was more complex than just oil, but you know, I I, I do feel it was. Yeah, I do because the evidence wasn't there. I suppose it had to create some sort of narrative that people could latch onto and in support of it. See, and now this would be interesting as well because we get into uh, I suppose different views or political, you know, uh, affiliations and stuff. But tell us, I, I think John, you've got a you've got a, a an idea there. I, th I think once you once you're talking about um, a population or an institution, um, more than one thing can be true at once. So I think it's entirely possible there were people within somewhere in, 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 in the Allied governments at that point who were using this stuff cynically, who were like we will manufacture this this evidence to give us give us justification for war. But I think there are also people who completely believed it. I think that I think that like I I I've. I mean, I've always got the sense that Tony Blair meant what he said 
about mm. thinking this was a just war. And I think this is why, this is a big reason why he's so steadfast about it now, because if he ever turned around and went, well, that was a terrible mistake, wasn't it? Then he's got, you know, the blood of hundreds of thousands of people on his conscience. Mm -hmm. and he can't, you know, that's, no one can cope with that. Which you say he was taken in by a conspiracy then, you know, perhaps is that it wasn't, you know, he didn't create it. But yeah, like you said, he was taken in by it. And uh, yeah, you know. The, the other thing is, I don't think someone that actively has, to, I don't know what Tom thinks, I don't think anyone has to actively create these things. I think they can emerge through a sort of more organic process. It's not, they don't necessarily have authors in that sense. Exactly. And it's, it's actually, I think it's, I think it's the key point in the book is that when you have societies, when you have many, many people working together and they all have incentives in exactly the same way that things that look like they're the product of a conscious intelligence emerge from our collective behavior, that happens all over the place, you know, especially in the age of the internet where everything is A-B tested, even if you didn't mean to, right? Uh, you know, is what emerges from social media looks like somebody planned it. It's actually just thousands upon thousands upon hundreds of thousands of us all making small choices one way or the other. Do I retweet that? Do I not retweet that? You know, and it looks like it's it's a product of intelligence. It's not. It's just the product of like the emergent behavior of large societies. And in exactly that kind of way, I think that anytime you have an organization they can they can act in a way because of their incentives that looks like it was a plan actually no it's just everybody covering their ass you know like it didn't even require anybody to fake evidence of weapons of mass destruction it just required everybody in the meeting where the question was like what evidence have we got to slightly push it in the direction of like what they thought the desired outcome was just like oh the, it's it's the evidence is okay rather than eh, the evidence is okay you know like and if you multiply that out by hundreds of meetings and thousands of people looking at different things you get something that looks like a plan which is why you impose we you look at that and you impose a conspiracy on it and it's not a conspiracy it's just lots of people acting in small selfish ways in a system and that's where we see conspiracies interesting interesting what would be some of the some of the least offensive ones then some of the ones that like did did absolutely no harm there have been a crack as we say here here in ireland that you could tell you know over having a pint and it's just a bit of a joke you know it, it sounded good at the time nothing came of it and we all moved on do you have any particular ones that jumped out through the work on the book that you'll go you know what so that was fine. I, I've got I've got a couple. Um, my favorite my favorite one in the book um, is is uh, you come across the phantom time hypothesis. Oh which yeah. is which is which is uh, for the uninitiated the phantom time hypothesis is the idea that um, two hundred and ninety seven years of European history never happened. Um, because sometime in the run-up to the year 1000, um, a coalition of, of the Holy Roman Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor and the Pope decided that it would just sound far cooler to be ruling in the year 1000 than the year 703. Um, and so they made up they made up several centuries of history out of, out of whole cloth, uh, including, including Charlemagne, 
who who I don't know how everyone's European history is, but he's a pretty substantial figure. He's you know he's he, he, that's 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 quite a big thing to to make up. Um, what I like about this one is the sort of Eurocentrism of it. It, it, it. It's a very Western theory in the most literal sense of. It's a literalization of the notion of the Dark Ages, the idea that there are these centuries where we don't know very much about them. And the Western interpretation of that is, um, well, it's because they never happened. Uh, whereas actually the what in the rest of the world, history was still going on. It's just that Western Europe in, in those centuries was pretty much a backwater. <laughs> so it's, and we don't we don't have records because the Roman Empire has fallen. Um, and and you know basically it was you know it was all marauders and moving tribes and things. Whereas if you look to the, the Islamic world, for example, civilization is still pretty much going on as much as it ever was. It was doing quite well down there. It's it's is yeah. So it's it, I, I like this the Eurocentrism of it and just how how silly it is because it, it doesn't harm anyone, does it? It's not. It, it's not a. It's not one that's going to do any damage. like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here yeah the other one i really enjoyed doing just as the type of nerd i am is uh, the, the the idea that the paul mccartney died in 1966 theory uh which 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 uh, people have been which you know was definitely made up. We not only know it was made up, we have the names of a lot of the people who made it up. At the radio stations, uh, they were speaking on the student newspapers, they were writing in at the time. Um, but it has nonetheless sort of passed into, into, into Beatles lore, so that it's something that you know people get into the Beatles and they and disappear down this rabbit hole of reading around all the evidence that, that Paul, the guy being Paul McCartney for the last 56 years is not the real Paul McCartney. Good imposter. <laughs> Tom, what were your favourites? I mean, I, I, I love that one. I mean, I also love um, the one that, like, we very clearly know was a joke. Actually, several that we know were jokes that got out of hand. Um, I love the idea that Avril Lavigne is dead. Uh, she's not. She's oh, Avril Lavigne. She? Avril Lavigne, pop punk goddess. <laughs> Avril Lavigne is not dead. Um, <laughs> she's like a she, fan there, Tom. Yeah. I, I, I had uh, the, the first flat I lived in after leaving university, uh, we had a huge Avril Lavigne poster on the wall and, and I had an Avril Lavigne tie, skinny black tie. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, um, but she's not dead, goddammit. She, God she lived. Damn it, she's, um, she's not dead of, 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 as of five, since we came on the podcast anyway. Yeah, actually, sorry, I'm just going to Google just so that'd be horribly <laughs> insensitive if she's actually you know, carped it in the last few days. Um, uh, yes, so there's that one. I also love the idea, well, there's, there's actually, there's, there's a range of them, which is uh, that uh, Finland doesn't exist, uh, <laughs> that Australia doesn't exist, 
and that uh, Bielfeld, uh, a small town in Germany, doesn't exist. Just um, that one town. Yeah, no, it's just a very boring town. And so it kind of started as a joke that like is the kind of thing like you like, oh, I've never met anyone from there. And so like it kind of evolved from that into like it actually doesn't exist. Um, I was mentioned I mentioned this to a taxi driver in Cornwall the other day and he was like, I served in the British Army <laughs> in in Bielefeld. I was like, are you, you sure? Can you prove that? Yes. Could you something... pull over and prove that? Don't drive while you're doing it. Like <laughs> that's that's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Somebody, somebody should tell Finland's party pre, um, president, you know, that she's been in you know, the headlines recently. That her country doesn't exist. Maybe that's well, it's a get-out clause, isn't it? You're right. She's been she's been giving some flack. If she was to turn around and go, actually, ha, fooled you. There is no such country as Finland. Psych. You know, I'm, I'm starting um, to believe it because you know she doesn't behave like a prime minister. She's out like you know partying with her yeah. friends and she, you know. She, she, to be fair, we recently had Boris Johnson as prime minister, so we may have different standards in in this country uh, as to appropriate behaviour these days. But while we're on cultural tropes, as it were, one of my favourites, and I still like to believe a little bit as a big Doors fan, and he went so far over to see where Jim is quote-unquote, buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery in, in, in Paris, having died there. Um, but apparently he's, he's Mr. Mojo Rising, you know, in that song, you know, the anagram of his name, and he's down in the jungles in South America, hanging out, drinking rum, with the beard all grown up. And still to this day, I thought I saw him so recently, it was like revealed, shocking, new photographs of Jim Morrison, and they just had like, you know... <laughs> standard bug bug picture you know generic picture of probably some homeless dude you know so he, he, apparently jim's fallen on on hard times but again look no harm done and you know gives some people you know a little bit of a to add to the morrison myth so you know there's there's no harm there right i mean we're talking about we're going from the real heavy stuff 9-11s all the way down to avril Lavigne in your case tom so you know you're covering the whole gamut in the book it's it's Really, it's great. Yeah, great. It's, it, it sounds like a great fun doing it. Like it, it doesn't sound like, you know, I'm not sure how you're. you're we both work together on it, but it sounded like it was not too much. Labor of love. Whose idea was it? Uh, I was Tom's. I was I was plugged yeah. into the process. It's, okay. so it's one okay. of a series. So, yeah, uh, but yeah, no, I mean it's. It, it was one of the things. It like I've always loved conspiracy theories. Like I mean, I, and I've loved them as a person who has always been slightly attracted to, I mean, you know, I had the sort of the, the 14 times book as a kid. Like I was so into the Bermuda Triangle. Oh yeah. You don't hear much about the Bermuda Triangle. No, what happened to the Bermuda days. Triangle? Did they solve it? Did it, did it, it did it swallow itself? Like it's, I, uh, yeah. Um, and, you is know, there a cover up? Ooh. There you go. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Right. Conspiracy on a conspiracy. All, all of the problems we've been having with like global shipping and supply chains recently, uh, maybe that's yeah. actually the Bermuda Triangle. Have Shift. we considered that? I mean, I'm aware that none of the world's major supply chain shipping lanes go through the Bermuda area, but nonetheless, have we considered that? Um, uh, but yes, I, I loved, I loved all this. I loved aliens. I loved uh, ball lightning. That was a great one. Uh, spontaneous human combustion Ooh. not really a conspiracy theory but like again yeah. people don't seem 
to burst into flames quite as much as they did <laughs> back in the old days. Now, I think that, we have Charles Dickens to blame for that. For it, probably for Char- Charles Dickens, yeah. and also I would suggest uh, the lack of EU fire safety standards. <laughs> <laughs> On, for example, like, does your armchair catch fire? Uh, I'm guessing, like, this might not be unconnected. Um, In the same way that GPS is probably not unconnected to the Bermuda Triangle not being as big a deal. Um, uh, But (laughs) turns out all of the inexplicable things in history, extremely explicable. Um, But I loved loved all this stuff. And I still love, like, I have that impulse. Anything that's unexplained is great fun. Like, yeah. and so I kind of almost wish some of these conspiracy theories were true. And I'm I mean, sure there, I'm sure there's something, something we've written about in this book will have like a kernel of truth at least in it. And I mean, that's I, like one of my one of my favorite bits of like. So also in the celebrities chapter, which you keep touching on, uh, the sort of the, the ending I wanted to do there was to kind of like talk about the the Britney conspiracy, the idea that Britney Spears was being held prisoner against her will by this legal mechanism called the cons- uh, conservatorship. Uh, and bear with me. Oh, the, the, at the point I was writing this, the, the, so the clever literary conceit I was going for with it was like to sort of talk about this conspiracy theory and then at the end go, ah, but the thing is, we actually believe this one. Because having looked at the evidence, it and then halfway through writing the book, uh, it turned out to be right, um, which was which was you know, reassuring for our, our rationality. But the pain in the ass because I had to rewrite the end of that chapter. Go back but and- you know this is this is this is another sort of recurring theme of the book is you know sometimes there are real conspiracies and sometimes they sound insane, like you know the World War One was to some extent the result of a conspiracy. Uh, a conspiracy theory in that it was the result of conspiracy. There was a, the Black Hand Gang was a conspiracy to assassinate Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which was the trigger for the First World War. There was a real conspiracy to blow up the the, the English House, Houses of Parliament in 1603, mm. uh, which was defeated. These things do happen. And some of those, not, not like flat earth or something, but some of the things that are discussed as, as you know, a bit out there and wacky at the moment, uh, will probably one day turn out to be true, statistically speaking, and we don't know which they are. Exactly, and, and you know, I don't know if it's on point, but does it make you more cynical or less cynical when you when you when you delve into these stories? I mean, do, do you bring your kind of sceptical mind to it? You try and prove or disprove it, and then, like having written the book now, and you go about your day-to-day lives, does it make does it make you kind of question the world a little bit more, or are you just kind of okay with what you found out and just? We're able to put it out there and move on. I think it made me more credulous. I think um, I'm very grateful to Tom for getting me out of that cult and deprogramming me. Um, <laughs> I, do, I don't know. I, I don't think my level of cynicism has actually changed. I think I'm. I'm I am. I, I, th- I think I have blind spots, but I think we all have blind spots. And one of and this is another recurring theme in the book is actually most of us are pro- probably have the potential to fall for one of these things if it's exactly calibrated to to our interests and the thing we need explained. I think a lot of people um, would, would would be open to the right conspiracy for them. Absolutely, and I, I think you know if you're not doing anybody else any harm. Well, you know, go for it. You know, get yeah. delve right in there and, you know, let your imagination run free. And just, I suppose, and for our listeners now, before, before we go, like a quick, just tell us the name of uh, the books in the series. 
Oh, right. So the um, the books in the series are the first one is Humans, A Brief History of How We Effed It All Up. Uh, the second Brilliant. one is Truth, A Brief History of Total Bull. <laughs> uh, and the third is Conspiracy, uh, A Brief History of Bollocks. Bollocks. I don't know if I was allowed to say other swearers before that, but yeah, a uh, brief history of bollocks theories and how not to fall for them. Uh, well, so that those are the three books in the series. John, would you like to say the title of your book that's not in this series, but is still very good? Thank, thank you very much, Tom. My, my first book which came out last year is called The Compendium of Not Quite Everything. Which wow. is which is which has history in it, but has lots of other things in it too. It's just like interesting facts and lists and all that kind of jazz and like you know. From there's a footnote in it about like the dog that made me cry when I wrote it. It's you know, there's uh, all stuff from the creation of the universe to 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 where we go when we die. Um, and uh, uh, also there is a there is what was sort of originally intended as a spin-off newsletter called the newsletter of not quite everything, uh, which which now is a major part of my working life. So please subscribe to that as well. Well, if it's if it's half as entertaining um, and fascinating as you guys have been this really evening, it. yeah, it, it'd be a great seller, lads. You know, we we do a few weighty things on the on the historians. You know, check back. We you know, such a wide range of different authors and guests coming on. But you know, that was that was. That's uh, great. Loved it. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was. You know, a little bit a little bit different for us. So you brought a whole new. Thing to the thing to the table. Uh, we talk plenty of history, right? So you know, it's. Uh, yeah. well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us. It's been great to talk yeah. to you guys. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Lovely. I'll Thanks see you again sometime. Then. Fantastic. Okay. Cheers. Take care, everybody. Cheers. Bye. You Have too. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Bye.